0: Welcome to Tell a Friend. Hi, Brian. Now, firstly, I wanted to uh, ask you, as I ask all my guests, how have you been doing during this craziness? And yeah, how are you coping? How are you surviving 2020?
1: It's a storm in a teacup, but there are lots and lots of teacups, Brian. Lots of them, and they're all shaking. And... um... Yeah, it's uh, been up, down, round, back to front, inside out, uh, all of that. And then some, I'm doing okay.
0: And have you found that the pandemic and just everything going on this year, mm-hmm. that really impacted your creative process? Uh, has that impacted you at all?
1: Um, yes, it has impacted me, the pandemic. Um you know, there's no travel. I've never been at home so much for so long as throughout this pandemic. I'm I'm you know, I'm 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 not at home. Um normally I'm I've got a bag packed and I'm traveling somewhere to get on stage and uh read poetry or read from my book or give talks or keynote speeches, but but there are no plane tickets, man so you' you're,
0: you're a traveler then you, you like to be yeah
1: yeah all my adult life I've traveled around the world uh, to give um, to work and um, yeah it's that's not happening now so that is one way it's impacted me um, in, in in it on the other hand there's been a lot of work regarding um, Uh, projects and a lot of Zoom work, actually. When people say that this is a a less real atmosphere, this Zoom thing, but I think it isn't. I think it is, this is as real as it gets. As real as it gets. We're in the middle of a pandemic, but we're still finding ways to communicate. So, um, you know- You haven't got Zoom fatigue yet. I don't think so. I mean, I don't think so. I, I think that you have to give the best you can give in whatever environment you find yourself in. And you could say that the stage is quite an unusual environment. We talk about like wanting to be close to people and to feel people and stuff. And that is, that is the magic of live events, eyeball to eyeball with, with the audience or with the stage lights. But um, but this has something. You know, whoever's listening to this, they're in their own home right now. You know, so we, we are going into people's homes and you're in my home. That has got to be something. There's got to be some energy, some vibe to that, I think.
0: Now, you've been quite busy uh, this year. You've been a judge on the Booker Prize. Um I have, yeah. Uh, so give me an idea. What has Lensis I've been reading this year? Are you kidding me? I've read,
1: I've read 162 books throughout the pandemic. So that's 162 days. That's about a book a day it was. Um, so I've been reading everything from The Shadow King by an Ethiopian writer based in America to Evie Wiles' Bass Rock, The Big Yaru by Patrick McCabe. I mean, geez, how much of these hills are gold is a brilliant book, is gold. How much of these hills is gold is a brilliant book. But um, it didn't get through to the, to the shortlist. Um, yeah, many books, my friend.
0: <laughs> now, one of the books that has been on pretty much everyone's uh, reading list was your 2019 book, My Name is Why. And it was the number one Sunday Time bestseller.
1: Yeah. And,
0: um, you know, for, for my audience who may not have come across the book, in it, you talk about your, your early years, you talk about um, being in the care system, being taken away from your mother, and uh, just that emotional roller coaster of those early years. And, you know, it's a really revealing uh, book. And I wanted to find out from you. Before writing it did you did you have any fears about delving into that past because usually people don't want to uh, look back at uncomfortable stages in their life so what was that what was that like
1: Well, the eighteen years of my life was public record, so there were hundreds of people who were involved in making records and judgments on my development behind closed doors. So I have a pile of files which I received in 2015, which document those judgments over 18 years of age, even before I was born. So my life, my childhood particularly, has been a point of public record. And so I don't see any contradiction or conflict or I don't feel exposed by writing a book which exposes those records and, and then al- aligning those records with my own personal recollections. That's what the book is, you know? Um, so no, I, I, I feel quite assured by, by um, exposing those records and by aligning them with the truth as I saw it. And you can see the difference between the two. I think that's, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's what the reader experiences. The reader s- sees the difference between the two points of contact with my childhood. And then makes their own mind and their own opinion up as to what they believe is the truth.
0: And how do oh, it- I yeah. Sorry. I was, yeah. I was gonna um, just ask you, how does it feel to, you know, release really part of you? Because you know, the book is centered around your life, your early life. So now you're sharing it with the world and you've got people who are reading about it. What does that feel like when you feel so, you know, do you feel exposed in a sense?
1: No, I I don't feel exposed, or do I? Let me be honest, let me think about that. Like, not intellectually, but emotionally. I think at times I do feel emotionally exposed because people know a lot about me, you know, a lot about my childhood. And sometimes when you meet people and they know more about you than you realise, it's quite, um, it can be, it can be quite, it can be disconcerting, but actually that's the job of the writer is to be able to speak truth to power and to risk risk feeling um, like you've, like everybody has seen your open heart surgery. Um, and the thing is when you're writing, it's a bit like being under anesthetic you you you're dealing with the heart of the matter and you have to be committed to that regardless of what other people
0: think and in in the book uh when you talk about you know reaching the age of 17 and coming across you know all of this information about you including your name uh so really everything was turned on its head where it, you know, what you were told isn't how it seems to be. So how did that affect you uh, in terms of coming to terms with the fact that A, you've been deceived and B, having to now rediscover who you are and try and get a sense of your identity again? What was, what was that like?
1: Imagine if somebody was to say to you, you know, you are not Brian Knight. And then they give you a different name. They tell you, no, you're not Brian Ma- Knight. And you have a different name, and it's the name on your birth certificate. And you shouldn't be here, you should have been with your mother and father. Oh, and your mother and father are not your mother and father, and your brothers and sisters are not your brothers and sisters. And as a result of all of that, we're going to put you into children's homes, and then we're going to hold you there for the next six years until you're 18, and then we're going to throw you out, and we're not going to tell you about why any of this happened. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you would go into your adult life thinking, I-, "I need to." Well, firstly, you might break down. You know, you might have a breakdown, which I did in my uh, late teens. Um, you might feel a sense of um, a sense of loss and a lack of belonging to anything or anyone or anywhere. Um, you might feel anger. You might um, feel like you need to find out what the truth was. I think all of those things are what I felt when I found out that my name wasn't my name and that my mother had wanted me all along. It's a lot for a young person, you know, who's basically a child. It's a lot for them to deal with and to carry. I think my book is about, you know, about standing up for that person who all of those events happen to.
0: And for a person who go through um, all of that pain and trauma, how, uh, you know, looking at yourself now, how do you move forward from that? And how do you release that anger? Because I think um, it's also important to release anger and pain, but how do you do it in a constructive way where it doesn't burden you even further?
1: I mean, you don't. I mean, initially, when you feel a sense of loss and anger, um, you, you are consumed by it. And I think the first person that you hurt with your anger is yourself. You know, so I, I think that I was, um, I was, yeah, I, I had a low sense of, self worth I think and uh I think that i i had the I had to fight for myself, really, I guess I mean ultimately, whatever happens to you in life, it's you that has to come to terms with it, and it's you that has to um, find a way find a way through so You know fortunately i did how i don't know i mean maybe 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 the fact that i didn't have a family meant that i couldn't blame anybody which is kind of handy because i had to find out the actual facts and the actual truth so
0: and do you find uh forgiving is something that you know you're ready to do or do you think... Yeah, I mean,
1: forgiveness, forgiveness is really important. For me, anyway. I'm not saying forgiveness for anybody else, but I was surprised that forgiving meant that um, I could release a lot of the pent-up anger, I guess, that was in me. I didn't realise that that would happen, but uh, it did, Yeah forgiving the people who have done the worst thing to you feels like an impossible task for a lot of your life actually it isn't it's within your power and in fact it is exercising your power to forgive i mean some days i wake up and i i i feel like taking it all back you know i'm like no i don't forgive you i feel bad today so that 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 happens as well you know but um <clears throat> i think Forgiveness is a good thing.
0: And, yeah. you know, what, it, what is it like when um, really the, you know, the people that cause a lot of this trauma, you know, it's, it's the institutions within, you know, this country. It's, not, it's yeah. not so easy as to just simply blame one person. It's kind of a structural issue. Yeah. So how, how do you cope with that where, you know, you're living in a structure, the same structure that caused all of this?
1: Well, you know, later on today I will be at a conference for uh, children in care with the Children's Commissioner and I, uh, I believe that change is happening and so I would rather be part of the change than just looking at the institution as if it is an immovable, um, immovable object. You know, we have to fight. We have to fight constructively and um, we have to make right the wrongs that the institution has carried out. I feel more able to do that now than ever before in my life.
0: Now could you talk to me about your journey into poetry? Was that some kind of release for you um you know having experienced all of this what what did poetry mean to you and how did you find it
1: oh man i I was always i always thought of myself as a poet from a very young age from 12 and um uh yeah it's just important to find ways of being able to express yourself which are which are not um restricted by the institutional concerns. And I think art, whether it's poetry or music or um, painting or... <clears throat> art gives you the opportunity to speak your emotional truth. Yeah.
0: Now, can you talk and to me about... Who were who, who the people who were influencing you um, growing up? whether other poets, other music- musicians, who was who it that you were looking up to?
1: Bob Marley, um, Benjamin Zephaniah, um, who is, you know, you could say he's a better and stronger artist now than he was then. But like me, he had an anger and a fire and he found that poetry was his way of being able to articulate the complexity of his feelings and his anger. Um, and it's love as well, you know, love is, I think, <laughs> you find a love for the form and, um, and that's not to be ignored actually. Um, yeah, Benjamin Zephaniah, Linton Kwesi Johnson, Grace Nichols, John Agard, James Berry. Um, yeah, all of these great poets, mainly from the Caribbean actually at the time. Um, And then there's, you know, the musicians, the Stevie Wonders, um, the Aretha Franklins of the world, whom I enjoyed in music, yeah.
0: Now, it's great to hear you talk about uh, Benjamin Zephaniah, because back in July, I had him on the show. So I'm gonna ask you a question that I asked him actually. Being uh, an artist, a creative person, uh, do you see it as your responsibility to talk out against injustice in society, to talk about political issues, or do you feel that the artist should be able to devoid themselves of that?
1: I mean, I do believe that the artist has the choice to write about whatever he or she wishes to write about. I, do, I have no problem with a, uh, a writer of color writing all their life about trees if they want to write about trees. However, for me, then I think it's important to write about the injustices that I see. I think it's important that a writer bears witness to the times. I think it's important that a writer emotionally connects with, um, with um, his place uh, in society. And so, yeah, I think it's my responsibility to fight for change.
0: Now, early on in your career, um, you worked with the amazing Jessica Huntley and her husband, Eric Huntley, uh, yeah, yeah. who published your first book. And, you know, in this year where the conversation has really been about um, about blackness, about black heroes, especially in this country, I just wanted to talk about these two legends and, uh, you know, get a sense from you about what was your relationship and what do you remember of Jessica?
1: Well, it was a very familial relationship, actually, with Jessica and Eric. They were like wise old birds, sort of bringing me into the flock. That's what they did. They said, you are not alone. Uh, we would like to introduce you to some people and we would like you to be a part of something which you've been longing for and you know I used to go down to Bogle Overture bookshop in Ealing and do readings and I would I think I stayed at their house and Eric came to Manchester and stayed at mine and they were just they were just kind human beings who saw something in me which they wanted to elevate. And um, I really appreciate everything that Jessica and Eric did. They were pivotal in my development as a black writer.
0: Like, like um, you discuss in your book, your Ethiopian heritage. And I couldn't go this interview without talking about the conflict that's going on in Ethiopia right now. So I wanted to, you know, just hear, hear your thoughts on the issue.
1: My thoughts on the issue of what is happening in Ethiopia is that the sooner we come to a peaceful conclusion, the better, because the casualties of war are women and children and civilians, and they don't have any... don't have any there's no reason why why they should die and so um the sooner we come up with a peaceful conclusion in ethiopia the better
0: that's all i have
1: to say on the matter
0: yeah i've been i've been watching everything that's been going on and it's uh heartbreaking um especially when we look at you know everything going on on the african continent right now in nigeria in uganda in ethiopia um so yeah let's just hope that you know there's a quick resolution to it all but uh like i do with all my guests who come on my show i wanted to conclude our interview with a quick fire round of questions where i'll ask you to complete the sentence let's go so the first one the biggest misconception about me is
1: The biggest misconception about me is that I have to be on stage. My biggest fear is? My biggest fear is snakes.
0: My biggest regret is? Oh no,
1: my biggest fear is being in an old
0: people's home. Being in an old people's home and snakes. My biggest regret is? Oh, my
1: biggest regret is not saying sorry quickly quickly enough.
0: I'm most proud of...
1: I'm most proud of finding my family.
0: And lastly, the hardest lesson to learn was...
1: The hardest lesson to learn was...
0: Was to forgive. Lem Sisse, thank you so much for joining me on Telefriend.
1: Thank you very much, Brian Knight.